Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey, welcome back and a happy new year. I think this is going to be the first episode of the new year. So thank you so much for joining us in this crazy new year, 2023. Look, we have a really great interview today to talk about staying motivated with clear goals of our guest, Lilia Stoyavinov of Transformacy. And I'm going to massacre these a few times, but she's an amazing guest. So please just hang with me. Look, if you like the show, please go leave us a review at your favorite podcast listening platform of choice. It really helps us learn of how we can improve and it helps other entrepreneurs who are on their own journey find us. So please leave us a review. Look, today we're going to talk about setting goals and how it's easier to stay motivated when you have these. Now, we're not just saying like X goal, but really diving in. And Lily will really go into her process. Hey, she's an amazing force. And you'll love listening to her. But Lily will go into the, you know, how she fit and how she forces her goals to be really true and aligned with what she wants from her life. We're going to talk about how her approach to goal setting, the importance of getting experience for going out on your own, and really why you should always be paying attention to the numbers. Lilia Stoyanov is an angel investor and CEO of Transformity, which is a revolutionary HR software and freelance platform. As someone who has a global team of talent, I am fascinated by what they're doing and I'll probably be looking at it as we continue to grow. What they're doing simplifies what is a very time-consuming and very difficult process of managing talent around the globe. So I love this tool. She's received many awards, including the 2018 Female Entrepreneur Orange Prize Award, the 2017 First Woman Award, and a Top 10 FinTech Innovation Award. In today's episode, she's really going to go into some depth about asking yourself what you want to get and be very, very clear about the answer. It's so much easier to plan your roadmap when you have clarity around where you're heading. And I've talked about this a lot of how difficult I find it to define with any type of clarity at times, my goals. So listening to Lilia and how she shares and what she talks about where she goes through really helped me rethink some of the ways I'm going about it. So please listen to this. Also, get as much experience as possible before you set off on your own entrepreneurial journey. There's so much she'll talk about that you can't learn in school. And it is so much harder to learn on the job while you're in there. So it's getting the experience through other jobs, through working with other people, so important. Also, fill yourself with learning opportunities, reading books, listening to podcasts, hopefully like this one, and nurturing relationships with knowledgeable people that'll help you grow as an entrepreneur. But most importantly, pay attention to the numbers. This is something I've learned to my own detriment and yet to also to my own benefit in the past. 
you got to focus on the profitability, which I think most of us do have a really good handle on, but also the sustainability of the value of our business. That's the tricky one, I think, at times. It's like we're in the middle of a good period and I'm making money like no tomorrow and I think the world is going to keep rolling. And then, of course, the world changes and I have to adapt in turn. But with better planning around how sustainable my earnings are, I believe my businesses would be that much stronger in the future. Lily will share how she goes in through this and the importance for her of how to make sure that her businesses are sustainable. Just really great stuff. And, you know, I think Lily is a vice of it's impossible to be good at what you do if you isolate yourself. You need to speak with other entrepreneurs, people who are successfully managing their businesses. You need to learn from them. I think is great advice no matter what. Look, let's go talk with Lilia, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, Lily. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. You can see how nice and sunny it is, even though it's mid-September. We are very lucky. So you were saying, are you still in Crete right now, or have you moved off to Turkey on your travels? We just came back from Crete. Now I'm in my studio apartment and I'm traveling to Turkey in a couple of days. Yes, I'm very, very jealous. After having moved back to the US, it'll be a little bit before I get back to Europe. So now I'm jealous of some of your travels you have in front of you. I was just talking with the audience about you know your background and how interesting and the things that you're doing. And then Tiffy... TFY. I love all the different names and it would be great maybe a little bit later to kind of get into them and sort of this evolution of the brand. But given this movement to look at more remote and you know, virtual work, but then also as hiring global talent, I see service offerings like yours as being such a, such a more important thing because as someone who has hired global teams, We've kind of winged it a lot and it's not very scalable. So I love what you can do to help companies that start scaling their global tower. But before we get into Tuffy too much, I really want to learn, where do you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days? And you're a professor, you're leading this great company, you're doing some really cool stuff. So where do you see yourself? I see myself as someone doing what she loves. It's simply all the time figuring out how do I want this business to progress because what I want is freedom. It's financial freedom. It's the freedom to work and travel. It's the freedom to grow business the way I want it, not the way someone else being it. An external investor board, whoever else is trying to steer me to even though that I don't believe it's correct. So that's the very first question on the top of my head. What do I want? And once I know what I want, then it's much easier to have the roadmap and to say, okay, to get there, I need this and that steps. It's not so, I'd say, usual for an entrepreneur. Usually, if you meet someone who has started a software business, they would be following the beaten path, which is 
raise funding every six months or at least once per year. Don't focus too much on profitability, bearing a sustainable business focus on growth. You see that all this has been put down by the latest situation on the market. Out of a sudden, companies that previously were valued as unicorns lost their value overnight. They lost 20, 30, sometimes 50% of their valuation. And it's only because they did not focus on sustainability and profitability. So what I see all the time is the numbers. Are these numbers comfortable? Are these numbers allowing us to continue as an independent business? If not, I'll be worried. I think that is a very, you know, especially now with the market correction, I know and have invested in many startups through angel funds. And it's very interesting. I was just talking with someone about how he was told by his investors to not take on a significant amount of work for the company because it wasn't in the sexy line of the investment thesis. This was about a year and a half ago before things got choppy. So in hindsight, the difference was he was forced to sell his company at a much lower amount than he wanted versus taking on a significant amount of work that would have allowed them to grow even in this environment and, you know, postpone the need for any financing or for sales. So yeah, I think this is very, very relevant now, but I think what is very interesting is you haven't just come to this decision. You started this down this pathway quite a while ago. What led you to decide that you wanted to yeah, develop your business sort of in this way? Because you're not living the typical, not to disparage this, but the Tim Ferriss four-hour work week. You're developing a pretty sophisticated business, but you're building it around your specific lifestyle needs and goals. So what led you down that path? Well, I have a finance background. I graduated from Oxford University with a major in financial strategy. And when you ask a financier what picking order is and why do they prefer certain sources of funding over others, this may not absolutely ring a bell for anyone else, but the financier will smile and will tell you it's all about control and cost of capital. And we know that. We know that if we want to be independent, we need to keep an eye on book. It was the very first point on my list. Then I love freedom. You know, my Instagram account, the hashtag is most of the time freedom. It's freedom of everything, freedom of thought, freedom of travel, freedom of working from anywhere I want. Freedom to express myself as a writer the way I want. I have my own entrepreneur account. And when you have freedom on the top of your mind, then you build your business around freedom because you want to do it the way you live it. It's like, hey, it's so nice to have that glass cubicle office. It's the corner office people are really dying for. I used to have it when I was still a director at Coca-Cola. I didn't love it. To me, it was an aquarium. 
I could see the world. It was out there. I wasn't there. There was a glass wall between me and the world. That glass wall so many people would love to have. And really having no glass door between me and the world allowed me to be free and to build a business that's sustainable. We are seven years old company, sustainable, profitable. We can raise for more funding tomorrow if we need to, because we are profitable and have all the metrics, but we may opt not to do that. We may opt to sell the business tomorrow. If we have the right price tag, we may simply say, no, we continue. We can't do that. We have all that freedom. That's precisely the freedom Dr. Pringer in the previous example did not have. He was forced to sell his business at the price tag someone else has put there. He did not agree to that price, but he had no choice. We have the choice and it's important. To kind of go talk a little bit more about what led you here, because almost in talking about sort of your background in finance and not being a financier, but having seen schedules of power of uh, cap tables and who has what in negative situations, I could see very much that power. I just never really, I was like, oh yeah, duh, I've seen it and I've been impacted by it. But in looking at that, given what your product is, did this continue into the product decision? Because, you know, what you're building is something that does also aligns very much with the type of businesses I'm starting to see the bootstrap facet. So, you know, it's that kind of step up from the pure lifestyle entrepreneurs to the serious, but global focused entrepreneurs who are building teams globally, building service offerings on a global scale versus, you know, a typical market, you know, a regional market. And yet, you know, your product leans right into that. How did Tepi sort of come into that? This is where we're going to go. It was very natural decision. It was a need I have seen, and I have seen this need in a completely different context. Financial transformation and business transformation is a topic that comes on the top of the list of many senior executives. However, it has a dark side. And the dark side is when you automate the processes, lots of people lose their jobs. And that's how at first it came to my mind that we can change the way people get jobs. It was super hard in the beginning. Nobody believed in remote working. Nobody believed it's back in 2015. Nobody believed that you can manage your workforce. You're in South Korea or Japan. And you manage a team that is, let's say, in Portugal and Spain. It was unthinkable. And slowly people started believing in it. Initially, they trusted experts because if you know that it's someone who's expert in their field and they have already proved that they're successful, they know how to manage their time, how to deliver quality work, somehow it is more Rebuilding comfort in the eyes of the employer, whoever the employer is. And at first we started with very highly skilled experts. It was much easier to sell. 
until later COVID changed the perception of everyone, changed the way people are looking for jobs, changed the way people get managed. But it also has, to me, a very positive impact on the society at large. You may get a job somewhere, let's say in Africa, in a country that is currently really not in a good economic situation. The local economy is non-existing. Still, you can get a really good high-paying job and build a career still in your country. Most of these people cannot travel. First, they cannot get visas. And secondly, they cannot afford to travel and to travel back. It is an issue. But they earn decent money and they spend locally, which helps the local economy. And that's the positive impact on the society at large. And that's what I love a lot. It's not only the fancy freedom. Okay, I'm privileged to travel, work from any location, make friends everywhere. But I have double citizenship. I have no issues with visas, no issues with relocating wherever I want. Probably it's 1% of the global population. And this product is built precisely for those who don't have that privilege, who need to make a living, be decently paid where they are. And this helps the local economy. I like that because while this is a very strong need for the companies, it seems to be more focused on the value proposition for the employees, but it's the companies that are utilizing their service. Is that sort of the focus, you know, in building Tefli? Well, companies, I would say, have two different angles. The first angle, and I see it is quite a lot in the U.S., in Silicon Valley, also in some hubs in Europe. They really need talent. They're fighting for talent, specifically engineering talent, marketing talent, and the like. In this case, they're really happy to pay the same salary to whoever they find that fits that criteria. And that person could be sitting in Brazil, could be sitting in Ghana, could be sitting in Nigeria, in India, could be sitting in Norway. It doesn't matter for them. They just need the town, the top town, the brightest people. And this is one angle. They're ready to address any legislation requirements, anything that's needed to get hold of talent. The other point of view is rather to optimize cost. And in this case, these companies are usually struggling already. They are either loss making or they're not as profitable as they need to be. What's vicious down the road. In this case, they're rather looking to optimize cost and to pay less on opportunities, less on offices, etc. That's why they switch to hybrid business model. You know what the prices of offices in New York and London are these days, especially in London, because we are based there. It went crazy. In the last, I would say, nine months, prices went up. Everything is so expensive. It's driven by the electricity and gas prices, but not only. And now lots of smaller companies, they can't afford to pay offices. And they need to switch to hybrid model or to switch to a remote model. That's the other driver there. Yeah. If you're moving to a hybrid already because you're 
in Kutchi, your local talent is starting to push back on being in the office. You already are lending yourself to focusing on your acquisition of the best talent, not the best local talent. And that becomes an interesting dance that is happening broader and broader. I mean, I was laughing as you were talking about New York. I was in a high New York rent. And when I sold my company, we were looking at a lease renewal, and this was seven years ago, that was going to double if we hadn't sold. If I hadn't sold, um, my lease would have doubled. And I already was like, oh my God, this is insane. That was seven years ago. And I had made a promise to myself I was never going to have a main office. I was going to be just remote work seven plus years ago. Yeah. And watching COVID is interesting to see that. With the rise of this hybrid remote global talent thing, what are you finding in sort of the biggest, you know, difficulty that your company is sort of facing in, you know, sort of being able to service now this growing need and service evolving need? It's a never changing legislation across the globe. If all these companies need to be aware of the local legislation in each and every country and have a direct relationship with every person, we have global customers having teams of, let's say, 350 people. And these 350 people are in 80 plus countries, keeping it in order all the time is administrative burden like no other. That's why we decided to act as a company, as a service. It's called CAS, like SAS, but C instead of us. It's company as a service. We act as authorized reseller. We buy the services from all these independent contractors across the globe and resell to the legal entity, to the business customer. Hence, the business customer could receive just one invoice, not to have direct relationship with all these people, not to take care of collecting invoices, struggling to explain to them how to issue these invoices. It's mess. It's all automated, all done on behalf of the people. Nobody expects them to be aware of legislation, to know how to issue tax invoices. They simply know that it's all taken care of. The very same is the business customer. They know that it's taken care of. They just transfer end of the mouth to 3 million, which will be distributed automatically to their workforce across the world. They don't need to touch against movement of foreign currencies. They don't need to keep long and short positions in a variety of currencies. It's not their business. They shouldn't do that. They should focus on their business. And that's why we grow. We grow to pull fast because the need is there. I agree completely with the evolving nature because I've also seen in having employees or basically permanent contractors, which is what a lot of people end up doing. Also in countries are starting to indicate or utilize that as a locus or having a physical, you know, have, if you have someone who is doing the job of an employee, they want to then tax you. And while the appropriate taxes are all, you know, wherever you may stand on taxes, some are good, but some are overreach. And it is a very difficult thing 
to try and handle definitely as a company that has about 10 people globally, you know, that's difficult enough, you know, compared to, as you were talking about companies that have hundreds and thousands of employees, it's a very complex thing that then all of a sudden you open yourself to just such a wide variety of requirements that having someone take care of that is definitely a well worthwhile thing. In dealing with this rapidly transformed and changing, and we're talking sort of this regulatory thing, what do you find is sort of the entrepreneurial skill that you have to develop the most in order to lead this change? I would say having experience managing teams helps a lot. And I'd always recommend people not to start their first enterprise straight from school. They still lack practical experience. They lack experience figuring out what the hierarchy means. They lack experience structuring properly their business. And then I know that most people really dislike math numbers and trends, but you need to be able to read a PL. And first of all, you need to know what profit and loss account stands for. Otherwise, you'll be running out of cash sooner than you could imagine. You have no runway left and nobody would invest because the company is traveling or they would invest, but the valuation would be ridiculous at all. These are skills people need to first master before they even consider starting a business of their own. It is that hard thing to sort of explain that the skills you build from working for other people in the right opportunities, it's too often I think people go for where the money is going to be, either from a startup or from a job, et cetera. And the long-term game of trying to build a base of capability, you know, as an entrepreneur, I agree with you. I think sometimes people start a little too early and then kind of hit that road when they're early enthusiasm, willingness to work 4,000 hours a week, that artificial sweetener of early growth if they find product, even if, if they do find product market fit of whatever they're doing. It becomes very difficult to transition out of that if you don't have a broader base of understanding. So how in you know, utilizing your background to sort of manage to, what do you do to then further enhance your ability to, because you were talking about your experience of having done that. But obviously, as your team kind of grows and the complexity increases, you're being pushed further and further. What do you do to improve your own capabilities then? First and foremost, reading a lot. I'm looking for the best information. When I say best, it's quality information. I'm checking what the sources are before I trust a source. That's one. And then speaking with people. It's impossible to be good at what you do if you manage people, if you manage a business, if you isolate yourself. You need to speak with other entrepreneurs. You need to speak with people who are successful managing businesses. You need to learn from them as much as they learn from you. Are you members of a mastermind or do you have regular entrepreneurs that you talk with, any business groups? How do you go about that process of making sure you're talking with entrepreneurs that are going to help you grow? I'd say it's a mix of both. I love lecturing. I'm a professor at Ziggurat Business School in Barcelona. But actually, 
I learned as much from my students as they learn from me. My students, because it's MBA, they are in their 50s, 40s, 50s, they're mid-level managers or senior managers or entrepreneurs, and they share real-life examples. It's very challenging. These are not kids. They come with a particular problem. They will argue with you if they don't agree with whatever you are telling them, and they will rationalize, and they will be able to support their statement, and that's what they want. First of all, you need to be able to manage intelligent people. They'll challenge you. That's how you grow. That's how they grow. They come from different walks of life, different countries. And it's super interesting because I'm a fintech expert. Last semester, there was one particular person coming from Saudi Arabia explaining firsthand what is happening there, what the regulations are. How can you move money in and out of the company as a fintech? Is it possible? What the risks are? It's super valuable information that you cannot find. The country is more or less close to the world. You can't easily get information what's going on there. And the very same is applicable to other areas, to other continents even. All the time, because you have people who live there, who experience it, they come and they tell you. And to me as an expert, it's super valuable. The next time I'm advising a fintech or we're building our own payment engines, I really know that if you need to operate across such markets that are either very strictly regulated or that are considered to be more risky than others, etc., I already have the information and I can assess the risk and make an informed decision. That's why I love doing it. Lots of people are asking me, okay, you have so much on your plate. Why do you keep doing it? That's the answer. Actually, it adds more value to me. It's not about the money. I could make much more per hour than I do. It's not about that. It's something that's invaluable and that's human interaction with intelligent people. So that's one such source of interaction, information, personal growth. And then it making connections with like-minded people when I speak at conferences, when I visit events. We get to know each other, and then when we travel, we meet again and again. And it is because we understand that we add value to each other. It's not just because, okay, I'm in another city. I know nobody, but I met someone at the conference. I just want to grab a coffee because I'm social. That's one. Definitely. I would love to. But the second one is we exchange information. It's information about what I was working on or what I know about the topic the other person is interested in. It's something you build over time. It doesn't happen overnight, but if you're looking for like-minded people, to me, the best is attend as many events as you can, meet as many people as possible, and then keep in touch. Just meeting them is not enough. Keeping in touch with them, nurturing the relationship takes more effort. Sorry, because I've been thinking a lot about how to, you know, how to balance that and how to kind of create. I see too often efforts to optimize that, but the reality given that there's just human interaction, it is more of, if you optimize, you kind of take out some of the magic of the human interaction that like, oh, 
you have to sort of enjoy that serendipity of the right type of meeting at the right time with outside calls. So I really like how you're approaching that. Given that you're talking about your focus is on this personal freedom, your ability, and very jealous of your two passports, given all this, you know, one thing, I am very privileged, but I had to jump through a huge amount of paperwork and bureaucracy to be able to work in Europe or to live was working here. I don't know how the definition of virtual work is anymore. Um, I wasn't working in Spain, but whatever. Given the amount of hassle I had to go through to do that and, and given your freedom and given the importance of that for you and also your finance background. So I'm trying not to cage this too much, but how are you going about defining your success as an entrepreneur? Not specifically around them you know, the success metrics of the businesses, how do you go about defining that success? I'll just leave it there. That's an amazing question. You just formulated a question. How do you measure freedom? What the key metrics, KPIs, freedom are? It is definitely the very fine balance between earning enough to support the business and my lifestyle and my family and then to have the time to spend the cash I'm earning. Lots of entrepreneurs are really into vanity metrics. Like I need my company to be a unicorn in, let's say, seven, eight years. And I'll be working like 14, 15 hours per day. I'll burn out. I'll have tons of health issues. I'll have no time to spend cash. And eventually there will be able to spend cash if the business makes an exit. Usually it's paper billionaires. You have a valuation, but that valuation doesn't mean that the company has been sold for a billion. It's not sold to anybody. It's someone who invested at whatever the valuation is, but this doesn't mean that you have made any money. Most of the time, you don't see immediately cash into your personal bank account as an entrepreneur. It's something lots of people don't understand because it sounds like, okay, your company is valued at 1 billion, you have 1 billion in your bank account, your personal bank account. Not the case, totally not the case. But it's funny, when I'm speaking, especially it's college students who believe that the next startup is their life and so on and so forth. And they fail dramatically and how many of them end up addicted to drugs, alcohol, have mental issues, whatever else, because they don't know how to manage failure either. That's something we should always look at when we say the KPIs of freedom are A, financial freedom, and B, having the time to spend your money while being debt-free. That's how I define those KPIs. I like that. Those are great KPIs. And I think it's a very interesting thing as I talk with entrepreneurs like yourself that are taking, I think, this new path. You know, there has been, you know, the traditional investment, you know, the, what most people think of as entrepreneurship or at one point when I started my first company back in 93, 94, my, oh, you're doing a little E business, you know, not a big E. Real entrepreneurs take on funding and do all this. And then there was the upswell of sort of the lifestyle businesses and sort of the backpack businesses. 
but now this middle ground of optimizing for lifestyle, but not small lifestyle. You're building a very significant company with a very significant value proposition to address and the degree of complexity. Having just played around with a little bit, only a few countries' bureaucracies around hiring, you're not focusing on a small problem, that's for certain. So this is really interesting, Rutgers, becomes because you have so many different balancing points. Simple, it is optimizing for your lifestyle. But the complexity underneath that is very, very difficult. I think that's part of the beauty of what you're doing is I'm definitely going to think a little bit and dabble around in how to incorporate that into my own sort of planning. That's cool. What is going to be the success? I mean, and I'm trying not to just hit again on, okay, so it is this optimization of this perfect balance between financial resources, personal freedom, and the ability to support that, which is important to you. But to you, what is going to be true success in those things? Is it further on than where you are? Or is it just an enhancing of this? Is there a BHAG, a, you know, a Super Bowl to this? Or are you living it and you're just now thinking of enhancing and continuing it? I would say you live it. You live it daily. And people change. It's normal. It's how life is. And if one day you believe that what you have now is absolutely sufficient, the next morning you wake up and you already see something you'd like to. It's the way to keep people happy. I would say that's how I motivate my team as well. You need to have measurable, very well-defined goals that could be achieved in a relatively short period of time. I set up goals normally within three to six months. Especially for my team, I like it to be one to three month goals because you can see them happy and satisfied. You see, the goal was, let's say, one million in revenue for a salesperson this month. He achieved more than that. He's happy and super energized to make more next month. If you tell them you need to make, let's say, instead of 1 million per month, 12 million per year, it's the same. Mathematically, it's the same. Okay, but they need to wait till next January to see the result. And they're already, I would say, mid-year, latest in September. They are already tired of trying to hit the numbers, not sure if they will or whatever is that. So they get frustrated. No, my goals are always short and they're measurable. To keep people energized and happy, which doesn't mean that, okay, this month you achieve 1 million, next month we already have more ambitious targets. They'll be higher. But you already have that confidence. You achieve it. You achieve it again. And you have the energy and the desire. The same is applicable to me as a person. What I see is, and I live it, okay, I have achieved it in the eyes of lots of people around me because doing it on your own without external funding, not counting for grants, etc. It's lots of risk, lots of pressure. You don't have that backing. You don't have the cushion. But at the same time, it's 
different motivation, different adrenaline back. And that's why I wake up next morning and I'll say, oh, I achieved it. Well, I want more. And that's more is something I see and I can quantify. And then you have the next goal. And that's how it goes on and on. I believe that's the best way. That's the best way to keep people happy, productive, satisfied by what they're doing. Doesn't matter what it is. No, it very much seems to align with the path of mastery. You know, that, you know, what, how do you become a master? You chop the wood, you carry the water. What do you do once you become the master? Chop the wood, carry the water, but more so, and more so, and more so. And it is that incremental, directionally correct, you know, directionally focused effort that I find so interesting. Let's first talk about sort of entrepreneurs who find this conversation interesting or interested in learning more about you. Where would be the best way for them to engage you or to find out more information about you? And your efforts? The best is definitely LinkedIn, and I'm very active. I'll respond. Then, if they are more interested in travel blogs, rather beautiful photos from various travels across the globe, then it's my Instagram account. Maybe it won't be as quick as LinkedIn, but definitely if you're more interested in intros to some people, or if you're more interested to advise what to do if you find yourself in Crete or whatever other place I have already visited, then definitely Instagram is better. And it's the two dimensions of the same person. Every person has at least two different faces, and most of us have more. You have one which is in a business costume, it's there, it's on LinkedIn, and it's the person who is ultra-professional and false punctuation legislation whatever else is needed. But that's not the person you're going to have fun with. It's the person on Instagram that you're going to have fun if that's what you have on the top of your mind. If you want advice on traveling or why this cafe in Seoul is my favorite or whatever else is there. So you see the second face of someone who enjoys the world and enjoys life and travel. So these are the two channels. Then if you'd like to read articles, then it's my entrepreneur column. What else? I believe these three are definitely sufficient to get in touch with me at any point in time, regardless which angle you'd like to tackle. If you need professional advice, travel advice, or chatter chit chat. I love that. And we'll make sure to put that all in the show notes. Now, what type of businesses should reach out to Tati and when in their own thought process is best for them to reach out? And we'll obviously put the website and everything in the show notes. Well, if these are businesses that are growing the global workforce or want to manage their vendors, we have a vendor management system as well. If they need to optimize payment transfer spending to one of vendors, many small vendors like Optinets, et cetera, then definitely they could reach out to us at any point in time. We'll be able to help with streamlining this. If there is a business that wants to reach out to me as an angel investor to provide advice, interest, or if at that point in time I'm investing, co-investing in a syndicate with others, I never do it on my own. 
apart from my own companies, of course, but otherwise, as an angel investor, normally I'm part of a syndicate. Uh, that even that point in time, I'm actively a part of a syndicate that's focused on that particular industry stage of the business. I could also help them with guidance, how to engage with investors, what investors are looking at, etc. I'm focused on fintech, HRT, and blockchain only. These are my domains. It's very important to have the expertise. Otherwise, I believe that I could rather mislead than added value to these people. So if the business is not fintech, blockchain, or HRT, I don't believe I'm the right person. Very cool. We'll put that all into the show notes, everyone, so you can find out and you can go get more and you can pitch Lilia on your startup if you are in the appropriate fields. And I really, if you do, I want to hear about it because I, I would love to talk about that again on the show. Lilia, thank you so much for coming on today. I know you have so much going on and yeah, not just travel, even though I keep being very jealous of that. So I appreciate you finding time and I really look forward to trying to get you back on the show and talking more about how to define that personal freedom because the way you're approaching it is so deep and really enjoyable. So thank you so much for coming on today. Many, many thanks for having me. I'll go to grab coffee in Spain. The next time you're there, probably that's the easiest. Or maybe if you visit Walden. I am one of the companies I'm an advisor to. We're talking about trying to find a window in late fall. So definitely I'll let you know because it's one of my favorite cities also London. So that would be wonderful to do, Seth. All right. Well, I can't wait to talk to you soon. Thank you. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.